Okay, welcome to Wednesday Night Bible Study, Acts of the Apostles, Part 15. We'll be in Acts Chapter 17. Uh, so, uh, let's just open with a word of prayer as always. Lord God, we just thank you for this day and our bringing us together, Lord. We thank you that uh, we have the opportunity to study your word. We have the opportunity to draw closer to you. We have the opportunity to not only receive understanding and knowledge, Lord, but also application. So, Lord, help us with uh, what does this mean for us personally tonight? What does it mean for us corporately as the body of Christ? So, Father, I thank you for those that are here, those that are on their way, those that couldn't make it, Lord, those that are listening via podcast, Lord. We just thank you that, Holy Spirit, you're the teacher and you guide us into conversation tonight and understanding. And in this we give you praise and honor and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Acts chapter 17. You remember we're in the middle of Paul's second missionary journey. And uh, Paul's second missionary journey. So he's up over in here, we're going to be talking about this over here, Philippi, Thessalonica, Athens, and also Berea. So actually this part of the trip right here is what we're going to be talking about, Acts chapter 17. And this is also the time frame uh, after he, obviously he's Thessalonica and he's over in in Athens, uh, and later on he's going to go to Corinth, which we'll get to next week, is when he writes uh, first and second Thessalonians. So tonight I'll probably go into first and second Thessalonians because the issues that are raised are raised from a sermon that uh, Paul does that we're going to read uh, tonight. So Acts chapter 17, verse 1 to 9. It says, Now when they had traveled through Amphilopolis and Apollina, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Now, they've traveled from Philippi to Thessalonica. That's about 100 miles. And remember, they're walking. So, probably took them about a week or so, unless there were good antique shops along the way. And they <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, so, but probably at least a, a, a week's journey or more to, to get there. Verse 2, and according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them in the scripture. So he goes, you know, to the synagogue. He goes to where people always first, where they have the scriptures. And so he reasons with them, again, to the Jews first and then later to the Gentiles. When you get up into that region, there's fewer and fewer synagogues because there's fewer and fewer Jews. And just a little point of context. To have a synagogue, you have to have at least 10 believing Jews. If you have 10 believing males, 10 believing males, you have to have a synagogue in, in a city. So that, that's just their requirements. That's uh, not biblical or anything, but that's just the way they do it. So verse 3. Explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ. In other words, Christ means Messiah. 
uh, and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a great multitude of God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And coming upon the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. And when they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Uh, remember, because Caesar's subtitle is uh, uh, king. You know, he's God, uh, uh, son of God. Contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. Um, you know, there's uh, um, uh, an uproar wherever they go because, you know, they're, they're shaking things up. They're doing things different. But in verse 3 is something that gives what we're going to be talking about a little bit later in Thessalonians. It says in verse 3, it says, Explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, This Jesus whom I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. So right here, uh, what they're talking about is, as he's giving the gospel, he's you know explaining to them that Jesus had to suffer, go on the cross, died, was resurrected, and ascended, and then also the idea here, even with the gospel, is Jesus is going to return. So this raises questions. Because remember, they're hearing the gospel for the first time. Some of them have, have uh, especially the Greeks, aren't familiar with the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. And so they're hearing about resurrection for the first time. And, and this is going to cause some questions. And the other thing, in this particular area... Especially when we get to Thessalonica and down into Corinth and stuff, idol worship is huge. So, in other words, the church is being is growing, or they're trying to evangelize people that are steeped or immersed in idol worship, multiple gods, and now Paul comes teaching one God, whom all things go through, in Christ, one God, and that's the difference between. Uh, uh, between Christianity and, and Judaism and all the other religions, the other religions will have multiple gods. Uh, Judaism and Christianity brings the concept of one God, monotheism, one God. Uh, Jason, we don't have too much information on him other than the fact that most likely he welcomed them into his home and that's where they were staying and that's why the mob came. But I think what's interesting here is it says that uh, verse 5, but the Jews becoming jealous and making and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace formed a mob. I mean, it's kind of like what you have today, you know, and you have riots and stuff. You bring people that are that are just along to cause trouble, you know, incite a riot and all this other stuff. So this is the, you know, motif they used way back then. They're, they're still using it today to cause trouble. Uh, you just bring people who want to cause trouble. So he passes through there, and now verse 10. 
It says, And the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And Berea is right here. He's in Thessalonica, and he goes to Berea. That's about 46 miles. So maybe two and a half days, three days, something like that, journey. Um, but it's interesting, you know, they're having to flee a lot. I mean, they're, they go in there and they're preaching the gospel and then they want to get stoned or they're going to be thrown in jail or whatever. And, you know, they're, they're hightailing out of town nighttime. But it doesn't stop them from preaching the gospel. And I think it's important to realize this, you know, how Christianity starts and, and, and how, how, you know, the, you know what, what the apostles had to go through uh, to establish churches that we benefit from today. So verse 10 again, And the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived they went to the synagogue of the Jews, like they did in Thessalonica. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. So the difference between the Bereans and the Thessalonians were that the Bereans were sound like they were more theologically trained, and they were more willing to search the scriptures for what Paul was saying. So Paul was making his case out of the scriptures, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, and so they were eager to to uh, follow, you know, what was going on. That's why they're called more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. So in other words, Paul was teaching and they were looking in the scriptures. And that's why I always say, you know, that don't take it because I say it, take it because it's in the word of God. You know, it's what God is saying. Or, if, or sometimes if somebody says something, well, you know, the Bible says yada, 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 and then you go to look up what yada, yada, yada is and you find out it's not in the Bible. You know, you have to be real careful with that one. So verse 12, Many of them therefore believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. Uh, that's a, it's a wealthy area, by the way. It's a trade route. A lot of lot of commerce, a lot of lot of money, a lot of things flowing here, and it brings out the fact that women are coming because in Judaism, Judaism was male orientated, and only the men went into the synagogue. Only the men participated in the temple. In the temple, the women had a, a court which was above the, the temple area and they could look down and see what was going on, but they did not participate in the worship. But Jesus comes and Jesus welcomes the women, and so this is, this is you know, uh, changing the way things go. So it's, you know, it's just outlining the fact that women are coming into the, into the church. So then verse 13, Diego uh, but when, the, but when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed to Paul and Berea also, they came likewise, agitating and stirring up the crowds. So when the when the Jews in, in Thessalonica found out that Paul and Silas were now in Berea, they got upset and they took off for Berea to go after Paul. To say, you know, you can't be preaching that stuff here and to, to try and kick him out of there. They were agitating and stirring up the crowds. Verse 14, in chapter 17, verse 14. 
And then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there. Now those who conducted uh, Paul brought him as far as Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So what happens is Silas and Timothy stay there. They're teaching the Bereans. They're strengthening the church there. But Paul, who the Jews are really after, they send him to Athens, from Berea to Athens. So that's kind of where we're at, like I say, in in talking in in chapter 17. And uh, by the way, it's about 140... 140, 141 miles from Berea to Athens. So it's not a quick trip uh, uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Probably took him a week and a half, two weeks at least, if he was in a big hurry. So, verse 16. Uh, By the way, Athens was known as um, one of the most intellectual cities in the world at that time. Athens was the center of learning but the result was there was an intellectual city, a lot of philosophy, but it produced idol worship. So a lot of the idol worship in that area came out of Athens because that was a center of learning. And so again, the church is now having to preach the gospel in the light of idol worship. Now, just as a rabbit real quick, when we, when we talk about evangelism, and we talk about preaching the gospel, one of the things that we talk about in one of, the, one of our lessons is that you have, kind of have, to un, you have to understand who your audience is when you're evangelizing. So that if you know who they are, then you're better equipped to uh, 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 present the gospel in terms of what they already believe or what they know or where they're coming from. You know, so you have to make a case for one God as opposed to multiple gods. Because they lived their whole life, multiple gods and idol worship and all this stuff, and now here comes Paul and the others talking about one god. And then even making it more detailed when now you begin to talk about three in one. So this is, you know, really, really kind of sends them for a bit of a loop. Okay, so verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was beholding the city full of idols. Now, you know, again, when you're a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, your spirit is reborn, right? You now become sensitive spiritually. You know, many times you can attest to this. You walk into a room or a place or you hear something and you just see it's not God or it's something, and it just bothers you. And sometimes you don't know why at first, and then when you look around you realize there's an absence of God or there's a misuse of God where something is going on. So Paul's in Athens, and he's waiting for Silas and and Timothy, and he's looking around, he's walking around, and he just sees a city full of idols everywhere he turns. There's there's an idol for this, an idol for that. And again, pagan people turn things that they don't understand into idols. They don't understand it, so they make it an idol. That's why when we get to the story in in Corinth, one of the things in here was... uh, goddess Diana. There was fertility cults there. They worshipped the fact that a woman could conceive and a man couldn't. And this is how fertility cults now came up. We'll get to that next week or the week after. 
But again, that's just right across, right across the bay there. You know, it's probably like Oakland to San Francisco, something like that. You know, Athens to Corinth. So, any thoughts, questions on that? It's kind of straightforward. So, verse 17. So, he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be present. A good, a good point here for evangelism. Where do you do it? Where people are thinking about the God, where thinking, people are thinking about the Bible, and in the marketplace where people are congregating, you know. Uh, and that's why one of the things, once this COVID thing gets lightened up a little bit, and uh, maybe even before that, we're going to go out to the marketplace and do some street preaching. Uh, and with those happen to be present, verse 18, and also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were converging, conversing with him, and some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seemed to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Hold it there. He was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. This is something new to them. You've got idol worship. You've got these philosophers. You've got Athens. This is the center of learning. And it's like, okay, who does this babbler Paul think he is? In other words, they're sort of looking down their noses at Paul. You know, we're philosophers. You know, we've been we've been studying this for X amount of time. Uh, 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 we've been uh, uh, at this because philosophy comes up in that area about two to three hundred years before Jesus, and so philosophy is very big there. And there's it says Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him, and some were saying, "What would this idle babbler wish to say?" Others. He seemed to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was proclaiming Jesus and the, remember, the resurrection. This is going to be something we're going to talk about in a second when we get to Thessalonians. You know, he's, he's preaching the gospel. You know, the gospel is the resurrection, ascension, and, you know, and then Jesus also will return. But just a little light on, on Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, what they believed. Epicureans believed if God exists, he's not involved in day-to-day life. So think about it. You're trying to evangelize them, and their idea is, well, if this God, and there is a God that exists, he's not involved in day-to-day life. And now you're trying to teach him about a living God who's going to return. So you're going to butt heads right here. And their ultimate goal was pleasure and happiness. They felt that they were here for pleasure and happiness. Not that that was the only thing that they were about, but it, it all centered around that. They felt that life was to be lived, to be enjoyed. And again, if God's not involved and there's no higher power, who's to tell you what to do? You can do whatever you want, right? That was their philosophy. That's the way they live. So, so people believe that. Stoic philosophers said they didn't put it in terms of God. They put it in terms of purpose. They said there's a purpose to life. We don't know what that is. But the idea is is through education and through living 
you begin to find the purpose of life. And as you find, and this is individual, for you it could be one thing, for her it could be another, for me it could be another. When you find what that purpose is, you align yourself with that purpose. So in other words, the purpose is teaching. The purpose is, uh, uh, it could even cross over here, the purpose is pleasure and happiness. Right? Uh, purpose could be whatever you want it to be. You align yourself with it, but what happens is you become self-sufficient. You don't need a God. Because it's all about you. I found the purpose of life. I am now following this. And, you know, this is like, uh, for example, uh, Wicca, which is, which is basically witchcraft, but it's, 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 it's the worship of nature. So that's the purpose of life, is to worship what is here. When we found our purpose, we will go out in the woods and we will worship and, and make idols out of all the stuff we don't understand. That's our purpose. We align with that and we are self-sufficient. We don't need God. So this is the environment that the gospel is being preached in. So the reason I'm laboring this is because when we're done with this little part here, I'm going to go into Thessalonians and Thessalonians is going to answer some of the questions that these people are having about the gospel. So we'll get to that in a second. Thoughts, questions on that? And, and by the way, Paul, in all his journeys from this point on, philosophy is going to be a big thing that he's going to be uh, coming against because philosophy is, is huge in these areas. The philosophy is, you know, Socrates and Plato and, and all that stuff. It's, it's still around today. Uh, let's see. Verse 19. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming. Uh, Areopagus, this is a place where the philosophers used to uh, uh, come and uh, they would debate and they would give their, uh, um, um, their thoughts on whatever it was. It was like years ago, uh, they don't have it anymore, but a couple of us in here might remember, in downtown L.A., there was Pershing Square. You could go down there, and they had a little thing, and you could just start talking about whatever, and you could draw a crowd, or people would throw whatever at you, but you know, you, it was a place where people came every day. And I remember a teenager going down there, and I said, let's go down there and see who's doing what. And people were just sitting there on a soapbox, preaching whatever whatever it was. And uh, now it's a parking lot, I think, or something. You know. But anyway, it's kind of like that. But this is known as Paul's sermon at Areopagus, but it's also, in your Bibles, it might be called Mars Hill. The difference is really nothing. <laughs> um, that Areopagus is the Greek god of war. That's a Greek name for that area. But it's under Roman rule. So Rome calls it Mars Hill. Mars is the Roman god of war. Same thing. It could be Areopagus, Greek god of war, or Mars Hill, Roman god of war. It's the same thing, same place. Okay. Sometimes your Bibles might have a little heading above it that says Mars, Mars Hill or, or the other way around. So... It's just talking about the same place. That sometimes it can be a little bit confusing about the world then because it was Greek educated but Roman ruled. So that's why you, people had two names. That's why a lot of cities had double names. 
and stuff because it was known under its Greek name, it was known under its Roman name. So, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming. For we are bringing, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Notice, he's talking about atonement. He's talking about sin. He's talking about separation from God. You know, he's, he's talking about the gospel. He's talking about, you know, God so loved the world, he sent Jesus Christ, uh, who died on the cross, you know, and you know, his blood was shed for us. Uh, he died, was buried, was resurrected, ascended, seated at the right hand of the Father, and he's going to return. That's the gospel. This is the strange teaching that they're talking about because resurrection wasn't something that they believed in. You know, sometimes they felt you might come back in a different form or something, or some some philosophers felt you just relived your life over and over and over until you gained enough knowledge and then eventually you return back to wherever the, the original source of knowledge is, but they don't have a name for it. That's just philosophy that was out there. So they brought him, they want to know what's the strange new teaching that you're bringing. Uh, verse 20 again, For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. We want to know, therefore, what these things mean. It says, Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. In other words, they would go to this place and they would share the news or they would whatever, you know, they would do their philosophy and this and that. Verse 22, Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. He gets their attention. Okay, now remember, I, I think I told you last week or the week before, that when you're teaching, when you're preaching or teaching, there needs to be a hook. You need to get people's attention. You need, you need to hook them. And so he says, Men of Athens, I observe that you're very religious in all respects. That gets their attention. Yeah, because we are. We're philosophers and we know and, and all this stuff. And then he comes right behind it. And he says, For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship in ignorance, I pro- this I proclaim to you. He says, boom, all of a sudden he gets their attention. And then he says, you know, you're worshiping in ignorance. He says, I actually saw a, a, a statue dedicated to an unknown God. Think about that for a second. To an unknown God. It's bad enough that it's to some God they made up. This is just to an unknown God. We don't even know who it is, but we're going we're gonna to worship you as, as unknown and, and, and this I proclaim to you. And now here, here it comes. He hits them. Verse 24. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Doctrine statement there, God's created all things. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. He does not dwell in temples made with hands hands. So now he's right in their face because they have all these temples all over the place to all these gods, all these different deities. And he says, the God I'm talking about doesn't dwell in a man-made temple. 
Verse 25, Neither is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. In other words, God created all things. He puts breath in us. He gives us all things. In other words, we cannot give any God anything. We are not assisting God in what God cannot do. That's part of philosophy. I find the meaning of life, and now I find that purpose, and I align myself with that purpose, and therefore, as I align, I fulfill the, pur- the purpose of whatever I think it is becoming self-efficient. In other words, I'm now thrusting myself in the middle of this, helping it along. Again, that's nature worship. Uh, he gives life and breath in all things. Verse 26. And he made from one very nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and boundaries and habitation. Talking about Israel. That they should seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Now think about this. He's bringing God in there, a one God. And he says he doesn't live in a temple, but he's not far from us. So, I mean, you know, he's getting their attention, but at the same time, think about, this is going to raise some questions, right? You're, you're, you're not, you're not going to get every single thing here, so it is going to raise some, some questions. He's not far from each one of us. For in him we live, move, and exist. For even some of your own poets have said, for we are also are his offspring. In other words, some philosophers have said that we are part of the essential deity, uh, you know, and that once we gain enough knowledge or whatever it is, uh, we, we return in a, in a spiritual form. So, let me see here. So then, 49. Being then the offspring of God, we ought to not think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. So he says, the divine nature of God is not something that you create. It's not a statue. It's not a building. It's not a place. You know, he's 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 bringing them to encounter, you know, the God of the Old Testament. Therefore, here comes the gospel. Therefore, having overlooked. The times of ignorance, in other words, when you did not know or you did not seek God, God is now declaring to men, in other words, to the world, to all, that all everywhere should repent. And that, again, that's the first part of the gospel. We're sinners and we should repent. Again, it doesn't say right here what you repent of, but we know what it is. You know, you're, it's your sin. You repent of your sin. He's giving them the gospel that we should repent. And then 31, he says, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world. Another doctrine statement. He, God will judge the world. He fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed. Now we know who he's talking about, right? Jesus Christ. Been appointed. Uh having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. This was witnessed of, right? 
Uh, he preached for 40 days. They saw him ascend into heaven and said he will return the same way. Now realize, this is, this is people that are thinkers. These are philosophers. This is a center of education over there. So it's going to pique some understanding. Even if you are, are saying this man is speaking the truth, it aligns with scripture, it's still going to leave you with some thought. There's some concern here that you could have. So verse 31 again. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, this is important, some began to sneer. But others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So some were just outright, no, Others were, we need to have some more information here. You know, we, 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 we want to find out more of this. Verse 33, so Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Among them were also uh, Dionysus and Ropegite, sounds like a stone, and a woman named Damaris and some others with them. So people were evangelized in this teaching. Now, what this causes is that the teaching that he's bringing from in this region, from Philippi to Thessalonica to Berea to Athens, it's going to go to Corinth. Some of the questions are going to be now popping up in Thessalonica. The church in Thessalonica is going to have a huge question and a huge concern because what happens? People get saved in a world filled with philosophy and now philosophy wants to come into the church. They want to bring their teaching into the church. And so it causes some concern. It could raise some questions and some people can now maybe meaning well, but sometimes take things and extrapolate it out the wrong way. You know, trying to explain it the wrong way. So, uh, I've got time. Go to First Thessalonians. Because when he leaves here, he's going to be writing First Thessalonians and Second Thessalonians. So again, to the church in Thessalonica, up here, that he was at, where Timothy was, Silas was at, some others were there. So I'm just going to kind of read a few little random verses here, and then I'm going to get to the meat of the question. So we can kind of see the background that when you read this, in light of what we just read. So in other words, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Uh, that, that's a $10 fine. <laughs> Just kidding. Paul and, and Sylvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thess- Thessalonians in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you in peace. So Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy, the ones that were there, writing this letter back to them. 
We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. Because he knew them, right? He knew the church, making mention of you, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness and hope of our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel, notice gospel, remember, I tell you, whenever you see gospel, underline it or do something if you want. Let's just see how many times the gospel is mentioned. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. You are also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord was sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith towards God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, and you, how you turn to God from idols to serving the living and true God. See, we talked about how there's idol worship over there. He said, you turn from that. And, and, uh, and then verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven. This is important. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So they've had the whole gospel. Jesus is going to return, right? And so they're also a church that's thriving, it's growing. Uh, Macedonia up there, they're preaching and they're spreading the word out. But there raises a question. Uh, chapter 2 goes into Paul's founding of the church there. You can probably read it later. It talks about how he founded the church and he was there. Chapter 3 goes how he sent Timothy over there. Chapter 4 is talking about church growth. But drop down to chapter 4, verse 13. Because this is where he answers with their, their, their major question. Because remember, idol worship. They had no concept of a dying Messiah. They had no concept of a Messiah who was going to go on a cross. They had no concept of a Messiah who was going to die, be resurrected, return to heaven, and then a Messiah who was going to come back and judge them. And as he says there in verse 10, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So they know that Jesus is going to come back and he's going to deliver them from the wrath to come. But, like most generations, they all felt Jesus is going to return in their lifetime. So the question becomes, what happens if Jesus returns? What happens to those people that have passed away before Jesus returns? What's going to happen to them? So it's a natural question. What's going to happen? So chapter 4, verse 13. He says, but we do not want you to be uninformed brethren. So in other words, here he's, he's going after it. We don't want you to be uninformed. We want you to know this, this fact here. About those who are asleep, which is a metaphor, for you that you may not grieve, 
as do the rest who have no hope. Again, you know, just to not have Christ is to have not have hope. But we have hope because we have Christ. He says, brethren, to those who are asleep that you may not grieve because they're grieving about those who have passed and Jesus hasn't returned yet. Because they got the message Jesus is going to come back in, in their lifetime and, and take them all to heaven. I mean, you know, it's, 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 they have no reason not to believe that, right? As any generation, because we're all to do what? Be ready. And be prepared, because he can come when? At any time. So, for if we, verse 14, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring him, bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Right there he answers it. He will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. So at that point, they can rest assured. Right? He's answering them, their question. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. Okay, in other words, they're going to be with Christ first before we are, right? See, again, this is elementary Christianity, but it is foundational because we already know this, you know, because we've been taught this, you know, for however long we've been in church, but they're getting this for the first time. This is this is foundational. That's why these epistles are so important to the church, because they give us that foundational teaching based upon the questions of the early church. Because again, the epistles are all answers to, to questions or problems and applies a correction. Verse 16. It says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. Sometimes it might be translated as a trumpet. With the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Uh, you, you guys were all here Sunday, so... Remember Sunday when we were talking in Revelation, I was talking about their scrolls, trumpets, and uh, bowls, and it talks about those judgments and those things, and sometimes we think they're three different things, but they're all the same, it's just the judgment of God is explained three different ways. The first is the, is the scroll in heaven. Only one was deemed worthy in heaven to open that scroll and read it, and what he reads is judgment upon the earth. Then the next one is you have the seven, you have you have you have the trumpets, and now the trumpets are seven judgments that are going to come out on the world that were in the scrolls. They're not different; it's what's in the scrolls, so it's to be read with it. Trumpet is an announcement, and so you were saying here: for though for the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an angel, archangel, with the trumpet of God, the announcement of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise. First, and just to finish my little rabbit chase, then the bold judgments in Revelation are that which is poured out upon the earth, but the bold judgments have already been revealed in the bowl, in the in the uh, in the trumpet, and in the scroll. It's all the same. That's just when it's poured out on the earth. So all three of those. Sometimes people think it's three different calamities, three different things. No, it's one thing. You have it, it's announced in heaven, it's announced to the earth, and then it's poured out. 
before the last days. That's why I say it's not rocket science. Uh, so the dead in Christ shall rise first. So this has got to be a huge relief to them because that's their question. Right? That's their concern. We're hearing about the resurrection and Jesus is going to be, well, what happens with those that have died first? It's a natural question. Verse 17. Then we who are alive will remain, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. It's kind of like a little bullet point thing to a question. It's not an exhaustive study, but it's an answer to a, a question. It's just like if someone came to you with a question about something, you know, you don't want to drag it out, you don't want to confuse it, give them the bullet points, give them the thought, and if there are any questions behind it, answer the question. Okay? Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Um, thoughts, questions, comments? Because this is the early church, and when you're reading this, it's talking about the church, it's talking about how they're growing, it's talking about directions for them to grow and things to do, and then all of a sudden you get into this eschatology, end-time events, and you're like, well, wait a minute, where is this coming from? Well, it's coming from what was being preached to them, and they were having natural questions about it. What happens? And so here he answers it. And that's why in verse 5, uh, it goes on about the description of the day of the Lord, or the return of the Lord. He says, Now as to the times and the epochs, the brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you, you show yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. In other words, you don't know when it's going to come, when it's going to happen, which we, which we all know. But again, he's reinforcing this to them. Okay. Um, while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. Now, if you were to cross-reference this in the book of Revelation, this is where you have you know, the Antichrist, the Antichrist makes a peace treaty over there, and there's and there's three and a half years of safety and peace, and then all of a sudden, you know, he goes into the temple, uh, declares himself to be God, and then that's when Armageddon happens and the destruction and all that stuff. So, you know, there's kind of a cross-reference for it, but when this is written, they don't have revelation, they don't have uh, a lot of stuff, they probably don't even have Matthew 24 yet. But if they do, they have it in bits and pieces. All the churches might not have it yet. Okay? Because um, those things were handed around and the scribes would, um, would would copy them and then they were they were distributed to all all the churches. Uh, verse 4, But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day should overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light, sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and a helmet of hope and salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. This answers a question here sometimes. Well, what happens, you know, if we're alive in Armageddon and Jesus comes back in judgment? He says, well, we're not destined for wrath. We're not destined for God's wrath. So, um, we're not obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, 
doctrine statement, that to, that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you are also doing. And then he goes on with instructions about holy living and stuff like that. But he drops that little eschatology thing right in the in the middle of this. And it's like, well, where did that come from? And why is that there? Well, it's because this was a problem that was coming up. This was a concern uh, that was going on. And Second uh, Thessalonians is pretty much just a little recap on, on it. He gives thanks for them. Again, I'm in Second Th- Thessalonians chapter 1. It says, Paul, Silvanus, Timothy, to the church of Thessalonica, and God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. We always give thanks to you for our brethren, for it is only fitting because your faith is greatly enlarged and love each of you towards one another grows ever greater. Therefore we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. All their persecutions and afflictions, they live in, in idle country. Philosophers, all this stuff, and they're dealing with the, you know, the Jews that don't want them there. So the church is, is, is growing in the midst of all of this stuff. And then he goes on to encourage them in their persecution. And he prays for their blessing in chapter 2, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed, either by a spirit or a message or a letter, as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. So now again, what was what was the problem? The day of the Lord has already come. You missed it. You know, um, Jehovah Witnesses, throughout their history, I think they started in like 1836, and uh, about three or four times they had predicted when the day of the Lord was going to come. And the, the last time they predicted, and it didn't happen, I think was in like 1926, 24, somewhere in that and uh, and then when they were called out on it, they said, well, it came, but it was spiritual, so we didn't see it. Uh, you know, and so this is what happens. People, you know, predict these things, or they say these things are going to happen. You know, these philosophers who are living self-sufficiently, and they just want to have a good time and, and happiness. They don't want to have any downside or whatever, and they're saying, well, everything's good. You know, it came and passed, and this and that. And so, you know, but if you're a believer, it, it causes trouble. It's just like, you know, when you get a false report or somebody lies about something, you know, there, there, there should or there needs to be a correction. So again, verse 2, that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed, either by a spirit or a message or a letter, as if from us, to effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you. For it will not come unless the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction. Again, if you were to cross-reference this, this is talking about the Antichrist at the end of the age. You can go into Daniel and kinds of stuff. Verse 4, Who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. This is important because this corresponds with Revelation and this is where 
when you look at end time events and people say, okay, well, how close are we to end time events? We are, biblically, everything is in place for the Antichrist to come right now except one thing. And that one thing is the temple. The temple has to be rebuilt because the temple will be rebuilt in Jerusalem and in there, that's where it says here, verse 4, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God displaying himself to as being God. This is this is the final straw and this is starts the calamity, the three and a half years of destruction and, and Jesus returns at, at that point. And so uh, how... Jews technically for 2100 years have not had a temple, so Orthodox Jews, especially in Israel, want to rebuild the temple. Right now the temple is under Muslim control. It won't be done uh, anytime soon, but if you Google Temple Mount Society, you'll see where there's a group of dedicated priests who have already put together the menorahs and the lampstands and all the different things and the altars and stuff. They've even, uh, the first thing that you have to do when you dedicate the temple, according to Levitical law, is you have to sacrifice a red heifer, which is a particular strain of, 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 of calf on the, on the temple altar. Well, they never had those over in Israel, but back in the, in, the, in the 1970s, this group commissioned a ranch in Texas to, to uh, breed a pure strain of red heifer. And they got the strain pure somewhere around 95, 1995, 96, somewhere in there. And now they have herds of those over in Israel. So they have the red heifer over there. They have all that stuff in place. All they need is a go-ahead to build that temple. Now, if the temple gets built, it doesn't mean Antichrist comes the next day. We don't know how long that temple is going to be built and exist, you know, because temples have, you know, have been in place for several hundred years before something happens. I don't know how long it's going to be. We don't know. I can't predict it. But I'm saying, theologically, uh, that temple has to be built and operating because Antichrist will declare himself to be God in that temple. It's known as the Tribulation Temple, and it talks about it in the book of Revelation. So here's just a cross-reference to that. Uh, verse 5, do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? You see, we're getting bullet points of the sermons. We're getting bullet points of what went on. But, you know, he's there for days, weeks, months. He's teaching them. A lot of things come up, a lot of questions, a lot of interaction. And so he's saying, remember, I was telling you about these things. And you know what restrains him now, and so that in his time he may be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. This is his devil. Only he now restrains, will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end the appearance of his coming. That is, the one who's coming in accord with the activity of Satan. See, Antichrist with Satan. Satan enters Antichrist. With all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false in order that they 
may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. And again, you know, this philosophy kind of kind of thing that would keep them from hearing the gospel. In verse 13, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith and truth. And it was for this he called you, who calls us, God calls us, Christ calls us, through our, what? Gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. How do you gain the glory with the glory of Lord Jesus Christ? Through the gospel. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or mouth or letter from us. Again, by letter from us. Now, they've, they've had... Uh, First Thessalonians has been sent to them. James's letter has gone out. The uh, gospel letters have already started to uh, uh, go around there. Um, I believe the first one that was written was uh, Mark, but I have checked that. Anyway, the brethren stand firm, behold, to the, to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. And now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself, God and our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. And then he goes on to say, wait patiently for the Lord. And he gives a conclusion on that. So that's the time frame of Thess- Thessalonians being written. And it's written in the case of idol worship, uh, false teaching, uh, idol worship coming into the church, philosophy coming into the church. But a question about something that was new to them, the resurrection and then the return of Christ, what happens. And so that was the problem. And so here it's answered and it's corrected for us. But it also goes along with our understanding of end time events. Because end time events you're not going to find just in the book of Revelation. You're going to find it here. You're going to find it in Revelation. You're going to find it in Matthew chapter 14, you're going to, you're going to find bits and pieces uh, scattered out uh, through, through, the, through the Bible. It's going to be in Daniel. Uh, a little bit of it's in Ezekiel and, and, and some of the others in Joel. You know, so, but when you take it and you put it all together, you cross-reference it and you extrapolate it out, that's how we get the big picture of, of what, is, it's what, is, what is to happen. So it's just uh, footnote information for the book of Revelation, but it's here to calm those who were worried uh, in, the early, in the early church. And that's what you want to do. You want to put out a fire in the early church. It, was a, it could be a fire, because if they didn't ad- address it, who knows where it would have went, what they would have been thinking, right? So again, that, that's the antecedent for us that biblically or theologically, when we come across teaching that as an error, we should what? Address it. Apply a correction Biblically, not thus say of Steve, but biblically. You know. So, thoughts, questions on that? You're good. So next week we'll pick up Acts chapter 18, and we're going to be talking about Corinthians and all that good stuff, and uh, Ephesus. So we're going to be in places you know where we've always heard. Uh, you know, the letters and we read them, but now we're going to be finding out what was going on there, what the people were like. 
So again, it just it just so next time when you read those letters, it's not okay. Now I get a better picture. Like now I get it. Now I understand. That's why I'm kind of going slow through there, and that's why. All his letters and his journeys. When we get to chapters 19 to 21, which is going to be the third missionary letter. Next week we're going to be in 18, uh, which he's still in Antioch. But chapters 19 to 21, he, you know, he's, he's three years in Ephesus. He's writing First and Second Corinthians. He's writing Romans, which is uh, I want to do Romans all by itself for the first of the year. And then we get down here in 60, 67 when he's in Rome under house arrest, and he writes the, uh, 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 some of the prison epistles, Ephesus, Colossians, Philemon, Philippians, Timothy, Titus, and Second Timothy. He writes those all there while he's under house arrest there. So that's how those things are. But again, we'll get the background context, so all of these things will make a whole lot more sense. We're good? Praise God. Okay. Let me close this in prayer. Lord God, again, we just thank you for your word. It is uh, clear that your word gives understanding. Your word gives encouragement. Your word gives knowledge. But your word also gives us application, Lord, that we learn and understand that our task and assignment, Lord, as a church, uh, is to come together in unity and to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, and to correct uh, myths and fables and to correct false teaching, to address it, Lord, and to address it by the Word of God uh, with all boldness, Lord. And so we are encouraged by the Scriptures, Lord. We are encouraged by what you say. We are encouraged by your love for us that not only did you send your Son to die for us, Lord, but you sent your Word to encourage us and guide us and to give us strength. So, Lord, we thank you for this time, Lord. Watch over us and guide us, Lord. We thank you uh, for the peace that you give us, Lord. In all of this, we just give you thanks and honor and praise and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. And the church said, Amen. Amen. Praise God. See you next week.